wondering, and I want a show of hands this time, if you've ever read the same book twice. Has anyone ever read the same book? Wow, okay, this is better than at the five o'clock service. We had one person who had read the same book twice last night. Uh, three times, anybody? Four times? Five times? You can't say the Bible, guys. Uh, five times? Six times. All right, what's the book? Franny and Zoe. Franny and Zoe. The book? Good night, Charles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amen. Now that I think of it, I've read Good Night Moon probably upwards of a thousand times. Yes. Well, uh, if you guys need any scholarly help, uh, Zach will be in the back after the service. Um, I've noticed over the years that I rarely read the same book twice, right? I, uh, I go to pick up something, you know, after I've read it, I keep it, and I put it on my shelf usually, and, uh, and it's there, and then I'll go to pick it up, and there's this, like, subtle voice inside that's like, Psh, you already read that. You don't need to get that again. You already understand that one. So I'll kind of like sometimes look at the, the back jacket on it and look at the pictures and I'll be like, oh yeah, I remember, I remember everything about that book. I already understand that one, but I don't need to pick it up and read it again. But here's the thing. On the few occasions that I have actually picked up the same book that I've read again, you know, years later or whatever, I invariably discover that I've almost entirely forgotten everything about it. And it's like reading the same book uh, it's like reading it fresh again, right, for the very first time. I don't even remember what the chapters are about. Usually I don't even remember what the main points are. Maybe I'm just a really bad reader, and I'm confessing that to you all here. Um, but maybe I'm just human. Uh, a number of studies in experimental psychology have shown that we tend to forget most of what we learn in the first 24 hours after we learn it. That's why tomorrow morning... Uh, if, if someone asks you, what was the sermon about yesterday? Most of you are going to go, uh... <laughs> and maybe if someone asks me tomorrow morning, what was the sermon about yesterday? I'll go, uh... Because we tend to forget most of what we learn in the first 24 hours after we learn it. It's, it turns out our minds are not like computer chips, right? Anyone ever seen the movie The Matrix before? Uh, there's this scene where Neo, the main character, uh, he's like plugged into a computer and they put this program in and it downloads all of the knowledge of how to do kung fu into his mind in like an instant. And he just like opens his eyes and he's like, I know kung fu. And uh, y the idea is that like knowledge just comes by, by just downloading something into your brain like you would onto your computer. But our minds don't actually work like that. Uh, when we read something or when we encounter a new situation, we process and we sort and we remember only the things uh, that we deem important at the time. That's how, we, that's how we process information. If we remembered everything, we would probably be unable to function uh, in everyday life, right? We simplify. We make bullet points. Think of it like this. Uh, imagine that every time you read a book, right, you finish it, you read through, you get to the back cover, you finish it, and then you get out this little scrap of paper, and you jot down like one, maybe two bullet points that you found helpful from that book. 
And then what you do is you rip out all of the pages of the book and throw them in the trash. And then you put your little like two bullet point summary in there inside the book jacket and put it back on your shelf. It's basically what our minds do. That's just how we function. Um, we summarize, we reduce things. We do it with everything, books, songs, vacation spots, people. We form these little summaries and then we use them to make judgment calls. So you're like, oh, this is a good song. You hear it on Spotify or whatever. Oh, it's Taylor Swift. Never mind. This is not a good song. Um, or I've read that book before. Yeah, that one's boring. That's boring. Um, why waste more time on this person? They've come up to talk to me after church, but I already know that they're a boring person or that they talk too much, so they're not worth my time, and our eyes glaze. We're so prone to form these basic ideas about things, and often we think that we understand the reality around us, but we actually don't. We're, our minds are fooling us to think that we understand everything around us, but it's really a lot of our own like conceptual categories that we're just throwing onto everything. Now, I'm not saying this because uh, I'm trying to get you all to remember my sermon tomorrow, or because I want you to reread your favorite books again, but that actually is a good activity. Um, I'm mentioning this because I'm about to ask us to open the scriptures, and we're going to look at Jesus and here's, here's the fear for me in this. This is what's, what's kind of dangerous about this. Um, many people in this building right now, and maybe online, are church-going people who have heard this, these stories, uh, who have read the Gospels many, many times, who have heard thousands of sermons. Um, and it's so easy. Or maybe you grew up in the church, and you've, you've heard it all, and you've tried it out, and found it wanting. Um, but, but you open it up, and it's so easy to look upon Jesus as a book that we've already read. I already get it. Okay. Eyes glaze over. There's really nothing for me here. This morning, we're looking at two different accounts from Matthew's gospel. One from chapter 13, and the other from chapter 15. And I want to set them side by side. We don't usually preach like this, but we are today. Uh, Matthew 13 and Matthew 15, side by side, uh, because together they urge us to see Jesus with fresh eyes. And that's what we're after this morning. Uh, and my prayer is that we would look on him and that we would find our home there. Um, that it wouldn't just be this set of information that we download into our brains, but that we would, we would see home and that we would flee to it. Um, whether you've been a Christian for 30 years and you're like, I've read this book before and it's feeling a little bit stale to me, or whether this was the first time you've ever heard about this, um, the Gospels exist for us to see Jesus. That's why we're all here and doing this. So please turn with me to our first text. This is our first group, Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 53. Matthew 13, 53 if you have a Bible. Uh, if you don't, there's ones in front of you, and if you don't have one at home, just take it home. It's our gift to you. Um, a little context, Matthew 13, 53. Jesus is in the northern region of Israel uh, near the Sea of Galilee. So if uh, Pittsburgh were Jerusalem, he would be up near like between Butler and Slippery Rock, somewhere in no man's land up there, right? Um, 
And uh, he's been teaching around that, that Sea of Galilee, which is really a glorified lake. And uh, he ventures about 15 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee. So go down on your map and to the left uh, to the town of Nazareth. Uh, so think like modern day Portersville, all right? And um, a few things about Nazareth. Uh, Nazareth was a Jewish town. So it was full of people who were familiar with the God of Israel, right? They grew up learning the Torah. They uh, knew the commandments. They knew the Shema. They could could recite it in Hebrew. They were good Jewish people. Uh, And then, number two, verse 54 tells us that Nazareth was Jesus' patris. I butchered that pronunciation, but you get it. Jesus' patris, his hometown or his home country. The emphasis here is not on the location, but on the emotional climate that he is entering. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. So it's full of people who are familiar with Jesus. If you remember, his adopted father, Joseph, was uh, the tecton of Nazareth. Our Bibles translate that carpenter, but there wasn't enough wood back then to really have a carpenter as we think of him now. It was more like the town fix-it guy, the handyman. And that was the trade that Jesus was raised up in. He would have grown up working with Joseph around the shop. And so everybody in Nazareth sees this Jesus come in and they're like, isn't that the fix-it guy? Hey, hey Jesus, can you fix my retaining wall while you're here? It's been like kind of crumbling. I really need somebody that knows how to do that. Um, That's a little closer to the categories that they have for him. They've read this book before. But then Jesus went into the synagogue and taught, and he blew their category to smithereens. Verse 54 says that the people were astonished. One scholar says that uh, they were struck out of their self-possession. Struck out of their self-possession. Uh, was anyone, does anyone remember where they were on September 11th, 2001? It's a staggering number number of hands. Um, There are enough people who are young enough today who were not even alive then. Uh, But so many of us remember that uh, because maybe you looked at the TV screens and you saw the towers fall or maybe you saw the planes hit the towers or maybe it was coming home and seeing everyone's cars in their driveways early in the middle of the day. But we were struck out of our self-possession and the whole landscape of the world changed in a moment. We were astonished. That's the the idea that Matthew's getting at here. Um, And it turns out that Jesus' teachings had this kind of effect on people. Matthew 7, 28, Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount, and the crowds were, quote, astonished at his teaching. Matthew 19, 25, Jesus teaches about money and wealth. And uh, don't even mind the crowds. His disciples were astonished, greatly astonished, because it was so hardcore. Matthew twenty two thirty three. Jesus starts talking about the resurrection, and when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Do you catch a pattern here? People hear Jesus' teaching, and their world, their paradigm flips. He had that kind of effect. They didn't think, oh, that was a good sermon. They think, oh, what do I do now? But 
it's not necessarily good or bad being astonished. What, happen, what matters is what happens next. This crowd in Nazareth are astonished, but does their astonishment lead to faith? No. It leads to offense. Look at verse 54. This is what they say. They were astonished, and then they say, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Isn't this the handyman's son? Isn't his mother called Mary? In other words, isn't he the guy who Mary had out of wedlock? Don't we know all of his brothers and sisters? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Now that phrase, took offense, uh, in the original Greek that carries this idea of tripping over something. Uh, one of my most glorious moments was in the sixth grade when uh, very much concerned with my appearance at all times, as every sixth grader is, uh, I was walking in front of a group of girls, uh, some, one of whom I think I liked, and I wore these like skateboarding shoes at the time to be cool. And, um, th but they were like a size or two too big. And, um, and I took offense because of the skateboarding shoes uh, right in front of everyone. And the front edge caught and I just went flying and face planted right in front of everyone. And it's really just been a downhill cruise from there. <laughs> we might say that this group was tripped up or even that they fell away. In Matthew 26, 31, we hear uh, that right before Jesus was arrested, he tells his disciples, today you will all fall away on account of me. It's the same word. Today, you could say, you will all take offense on account of me. Scandalon, a scandal, a tripping. So this first group of Nazarenes were astonished by Jesus, but then they remember like, oh, I know this guy. He's a tecton's son. Or at least they think they know him, don't they? And their familiarity trips them up, and they take offense. Why? For them, Jesus is like this book that they've read before. They have a formulated idea of him in their minds. They, have a, they know who he is and what he does, and nothing can break out of that paradigm. So at this moment, when he astonishes them, they really only have two options. Uh, one, they can do what they do, is take offense and reject him, and just say, there's something fishy here, this is bogus, I know this guy. Or, two, they could have just admitted that they've been wrong all along. The word in, Christian, in the Bible and in Christian circles for that is called repentance. Um, this crew has knowledge, but that knowledge puffs them up instead of leading them to repentance. And this gets down to the core issue. Um, for so many of us, the biggest obstacle between us and God is our own pride. Our inflated sense of our own self and our deflated sense of Jesus. We have this sense that we are capable that we can handle it all, thank you very much. And whatever it is that God is offering to us is really just a, like a scant little help. At most, maybe a pat on the back to help us along. But he can't really change anything, can he? The one who gives you every breath that you have, 
our pride is the greatest obstacle between us and God. So verse 58, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This raises a question for me. Uh, Why does unbelief prevent Jesus from doing mighty works? Uh, It sounds almost like Jesus is like a miracle machine. You know, you got to fire him up. And uh, he's like running on the faith of the believers. And like he shows up here almost like a generator runs on gasoline, right? He's like going, he's like, I don't know if there's enough faith here, guys. Try harder. Ah! No, this is the sovereign of the universe. We're talking about the Lord of all creation who can do what he wants, when he wants, where he wants. He, has, he doesn't need your faith. He doesn't need you for anything. There's a simple reason why Jesus didn't do many mighty works there. Nobody asked. Second group. Matthew 15, 29. Jesus is still up around the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel. You know, he's still in the Butler Slippery Rock area. Uh, But the context tells us that now he's venturing over toward Route 8. Uh, He's now among the Gentiles or non-Jews on the southeastern, think lower and to the right, portion of the Lake of Galilee. And this group is very different from the crowd that we just saw in Nazareth. One, these folks are not Jewish. Uh, They don't know the God of Israel. No familiarity. And two, they don't know Jesus. They've just heard things about him. That's probably why they're out there. But they're not familiar with Jesus. It's all new to them. And so what does Jesus do? Uh, Look at verse 30. He goes up on a mountain and he sits down. That's the position of a rabbi in those days. And I really wish that we would uh, recreate that because it would be quite convenient for me. I would really rather be the one sitting down and make you all stand up right? Uh, But I don't know how we got stuck with this arrangement. (laughs) What is with this? But he sits down, and verse 30, great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, basically the cultural elite, right? Uh, And they put them at his feet, and he healed them so that the crowd wondered. Also translated, the crowd marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. This is a paradigm-flipping moment. If there's any cause to be astonished, it's this. And they respond very different from the crowd of Nazareth. They glorified the God of Israel. They magnified the God of Israel. It's like their lives in that time became like a magnifying glass. And if you look at them, what you see is an enlarged image of God. That's what we were created for, to magnify God. So there's three parts to this encounter. These people come needy with nothing to offer. Jesus heals them, and then they wonder and marvel and glorify God. In many ways... Uh, that's my story, and hopefully that's yours too. Uh, And it's worth mentioning in the very next passage after this, Jesus multiplies loaves and fishes, and he feeds thousands. He feeds all of them, and there's leftovers too. There's seven baskets full of bread and fish after he's done. 
everybody gets healed, everybody gets a full belly. These are the mighty works that Jesus performs. And the only thing that qualifies these people to receive him is their need. So it is for you and me, friends. The only thing that qualifies us to come to Jesus is our need. They start out with nothing, they end up knowing Jesus. They start out empty, they end up well-fed. They start out broken, they end up restored and full of wonder and glorifying God. So I want to finish by pointing out that these two texts, taken together, are an invitation and a challenge for us. Especially for those of us who feel like we know Jesus, we've read that book before, and we're unimpressed. We live in a culture that's been described as post-Christian. In other words, um, our cultural milieu suggests that the way of Jesus has been tried. We gave it its honest try. It ran its course, and it's been found wanting. And so now we need some other solution to our problems. We need to find some other way. And to, say, to, be, to stand up here and be talking about Jesus as the solution to your problems is really regressive. Um, it's, it's really just beating the same old horse over and over and over again, and maybe emitting the same old oppressive narrative. Um, but here's my question. What if we didn't read the book right the first time? What if we think we know the book, but we actually don't know the book? Um, our sense of familiarity with Jesus keeps us so often from actually getting to know him. It can be dangerous to be a church person. So the challenge is this, friends. Uh, let's lay down our pride. I don't care how much you know. Uh, it, it, it's not going to get you fellowship with Jesus. Um, our confidence that our own goodness, our own spiritual maturity, or how much we understand will, will cut it, that simply is not the way people are encouraged to approach Jesus in the Gospels. I don't know about you, but I see a lot of myself in that crowd from Nazareth. Um, I overestimate myself. I underestimate Jesus. I tend to think that I have some sort of uh, strength or ability or cunning, and that Jesus is incompetent and insufficient. So let's not be proud. Let's open our eyes and see Jesus. Because it turns out he's actually more holy and glorious than you can imagine. He would terrify you in all of his holiness and glory, and yet he's also more gentle and lowly than you ever dared to hope. He has the, peel, the power to heal and restore you, and he actually likes to do it. If there's anything we should get from this series, it's that Jesus likes to heal people. Um, so that's the challenge. Now the invitation. Um, I don't know, if, has anyone ever seen a young child at a McDonald's play place or a Chick-fil-A? Anybody? Yeah, the, the parents of the soon-to-be-baptized are like, yeah, <laughs> and it's coming. Get ready. Um, well, I never tire of seeing the look in their eyes. Uh, usually I have to, to, to kind of grab a collar and hold them back, uh, almost like a wild dog, and uh, unbuckle the shoes, because you're not allowed to wear shoes in those things, right? Because they're just, they're just like trying to get get in and to, to go up and explore every nook and every cranny of this thing. The phrase that C.S. Lewis said in the Chronicles of Mar Narnia comes to mind, further up and further in. 
That's the attitude of a child in a McDonald's play place. There are so many crevices and amazing wonders up there that they are yet to behold. Friends, I pray that we would see our Lord like that. Um, Would we be chomping at the bit uh, to go and just be in his presence and run to him with all of our hearts? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we enter into a baptism, as as this congregation uh, commits to help raise our young um, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, would we help, would you fill our eyes with wonder that we would know you and love you and that we would, we would show them um, how amazing you are so that they would, in their due course of time, uh, grow up and, and want to go further up and further in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.